Hi, shalom everyone, and uh, welcome to our uh, Crossing Boundaries uh, live stream. Um, my name is Kim Tassi Yosef. I'm streaming to you live from Tel Aviv, Israel, and together with me, as always, is uh, one of our amazing co-founders, Aziz Abustera. Hi, Aziz. Hello, and I'm really you? excited about this week uh, conversation because the whole concept of what we're doing is bringing different narratives, trying to cross boundaries, trying to understand what's happening around us, wherever we are in our own countries, our own cities, but also in other places around the world. And we learn so much about how little we know when we think of those countries. I, coming from Jerusalem, didn't know much about the areas we talking about today. Uh, although I, I had uh, I had Armenian friends growing up in Jerusalem because we have a large Armenian uh, community there, but really didn't know didn't know even with having Armenian friends didn't know about the Azerbaijan and Armenia conflict, which to me sounds crazy. Is like my my best buddies in Jerusalem were literally uh, Armenian, <laughs> and yet we talked a lot about Turkey, but never really talked about uh, Azerbaijan. So that was a surprise to me as I started learning about the conflict. And actually, I learned about the conflict later from a, an Azerbaijanian friend who I met while working in George Mason University, who started explaining to me what's happening. And I was completely in shock and, uh, you know, not, not proud of it. But there's so much in this world that we don't know. And I think uh, it's very unfortunate because if you're watching then used today, even though thousands of people are losing their lives in Armenia and Azerbaijan, it's not a priority item in the news. Uh, it's it's in the background if you search, if you really look. But if you go to foxnews.com or cnn.com, it's not the first or second or third even item on the sites. And this is something why we wanted to talk about it, because we think it's important to learn what's happening around the world and to hear the different voices of what's happening. Right, I, I definitely agree with these. Um, I think that living or growing up in Israel, the number one spot that's written about, <laughs> usually in the CNN and other uh, news, um, it's, it's strange that sometimes you, you don't want to be interested in other conflicts because then, you know, why are you not interested in your own home and in your own conflict? And actually, I'm happy for the opportunity to discuss this and learn more. Um, and while I've been learning for this episode, I've, it, it always brings me back to think about which which side here is the Israeli or the Palestinian and, and, and try to understand that not everything is about <laughs> Israel and Palestine and things are different around the world. So it's uh, eye-opening for, for everyone. So welcome, Margarita and Olvi. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Yeah, and, and we, we are lucky to have both of you. You both are uh, very uh, knowledgeable about this. Margarita, you got your PhD from uh, the place I worked at for many, many hmm. years, George Mason University. And, uh, and Olvi, you've worked in international uh, organizations and nonprofits and uh, worked on issues related to, to these conflicts and peace development and peace building. So it's really great to have both of you. What we're going to do is we're going to interview each of you separately. Uh, and we will start with Olvi. And while we're doing that, we'll move uh, Margarita to the back uh, background. Uh, so she, she'll join the attendees. And uh, 
Ovi, uh, you watch this video right now, and uh, maybe it, we we well maybe before we want to watch a video. I'm sorry, um, we we did a test a couple minutes earlier, Kim and I, but we want to. <laughs> and uh, the video kind of is a simplified explanation of the conflict, and then what we want to do is just talk to you about what do you think about this and uh, your thoughts about uh, about the history pretty much of, of what's happening so let's start it's just a three three minutes three and a half minutes of video and then uh, we will continue our conversation <laughs> the first shots were fired in july before all-out war broke out at the end of september it's been the worst fighting there in 25 years but the grievances go back generations at the heart of the dispute is a region called Nagorno-Karabakh, and here it is in a crowded neighborhood known as the South Caucasus. Nagorno-Karabakh lies entirely within Azerbaijan's borders. It's internationally recognized as being part of the country, full stop. Here's the thing. It's controlled by ethnic Armenians, backed by Armenia. And surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh are lands that Armenia controls. The UN calls it an occupation. Then you've got all the big neighbors, like Iran, which borders both. Turkey, it's long been an ally of Azerbaijan. And then there's Russia. It supplies weapons to both Armenia and Azerbaijan. We'll get into all the geopolitics later. It makes up 5% of Azeri territory, but almost twice that much land around it is controlled by Armenian forces. About 150,000 people live here. It holds its own elections and governs itself. But right now, it's a war zone. Many people are living in their basements because of the shelling. And local officials say half the people who live there have been forced to leave. The thing about this region is that it's been fought over for a long time. Iran had control in the mid-18th century, then the Russians took over. The British and the Ottomans were in there too. But a key date in all of this is 1920. That's when Armenia and Azerbaijan went to war over Nagorno-Karabakh. And Azerbaijan, backed by Russia, got control. A year later, it was promised to the Armenians, but Stalin turned around and made sure Azerbaijan held onto it. By 1988, the Soviet Union was crumbling, and the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh took advantage of the power vacuum and voted to join Armenia. So when the Soviet Union finally fell apart in 1991, so did whatever was left of peace in the South Caucasus. What the collapse of the Soviet Union did was then to militarize this conflict. Uh, both sides suddenly got much bigger weapons. 1992 was when the fighting really intensified, right after Armenians and Nagorno-Karabakh declared independence. Both sides accuse each other of atrocities. Tens of thousands of local Azeris and Armenians were killed. A million people had to leave their homes. In the end, the Armenians pushed Azerbaijan's forces out of Nagorno-Karabakh, seized territories around it, and it all finally ended in a ceasefire in 1994. That ceasefire has been ignored by both Armenia and Azerbaijan over the years. And the sense of injustice over what happened in that war, the killings and mass displacement, hasn't gone away. This conflict has always been kind of put on the back burner. There's always the danger of some terrible incident causing a new escalation, in which case things could get totally out of control given the huge amount of, of weaponry we have on both sides. And now, both sides are tapping into that anger. It's full-scale war all over again. Trenches, tanks, 
air attacks. Air raid sirens wailed across the city as a barrage of rockets and mortars rained down. Azeri forces have been attacking Nagorno-Karabakh's main city, Stepanakert. Armenian men there have been signing up to fight back. Exact numbers are next to impossible to come by, but soldiers and civilians on both sides have been killed. Armenian forces have been attacking Azerbaijan too. The border city of Ganja has been among the hardest hit. Second rocket hit uh, the, the other street, and uh, there are also two other wounded people over there. So how and why did the fighting start up again? The answer depends entirely on who you ask. Armenia says Azerbaijan attacked first. Azerbaijan says it acted in self-defense. What's clear is that it's not exactly an even fight. Our colleagues at AJ Labs put together these infographics to show just how much more Azerbaijan spends on its military, how many more soldiers it has, and how much more artillery. Okay. <laughs> Hope that everyone heard that um, the video. Okay. I also sent a link on the chat uh, if you're interested in watching this later. Um, Ovi, let's start uh, with any comments about the video, if there's any anything that you'd like to uh, correct or, or mention? Um, well, thank you for inviting me. And um, again, I uh, before I'm because I'm historian also by my first training, um, um, I will definitely for historic a lot of historical facts we're going to say. I, I would recommend two major resources. One is a book by Tom Deval, Black Garden, which is called uh, a Bible of this conflict, and. Um, and the second one is just, it's a video product was just produced by Azerbaijan Armenian journalists um, through a British organization called uh, Reconciliation Resources. Um, and that's, uh, I have a good visual um, product. It's one hour video. You can, you can Google it and you can find it. So basically um, the current escalation, uh, I can talk about historical back, uh, background, which is true, which is goes back hundred years. Um, when we had our first republics, um, in, w when we were, were living in the you know, Tsarist Russia, we had no issues. I mean, for centuries before that, Armenians and Azeris lived in peace, no problems. Um, but when we started to have our own republics, national republics, you know, this is 20, early 20th century thing, which comes from French Revolution time. So that's when things start to change and uh, people want to stay in their own republic and want to claim the territory. And uh, in these territories, Armenians and Azeris lived, you know, more or less equally. You know, you may say more Azeris in each town, but there was significant Armenian population in all of those territories. Um, uh, at least when you look at modern Armenia and, and eastern uh, or western part of Azerbaijan. So, you know, they lived here in peace for centuries. So current escalation comes in, as they said, in July when... Um, um, there were forces, Armenian forces, that moved their positions a little bit ahead, and Zeri forces didn't know about this. They were driving in the car to their uh, posts, uh, military units, and they saw there was a shoot, shoot, they were shot, and uh, then Azerbaijan, of course, responded by missiles and Armenian missiles, and a small escalation was in July, and it was the first time in, uh, I think, since the ceasefire, I mean, even in the war. Um, Azerbaijani general was killed. Um, so that's angered people, a lot of people 
and they went in the streets for the first time in many years. They have been in the streets before, but it was for when Turkey won in the World Championship, uh, you know, got in the third place, etc. But for fun stuff. But it was the first time people went in the streets in mass numbers to protest to this. And Azerbaijanis in general, I mean, we have half a million internally displaced people from these areas. And of course, we have um, about 200,000 refugees from Armenia from the 88 um, 1988. So all these people, and of course others, uh, for years have been, you know, unhappy about how it ended for Azerbaijan. And of course, Azerbaijan, we can say, the lost the battle in 1994 uh, when ceasefire was signed. So people were unhappy about this, especially killing of several officers. And this officer, especially um, um, uh, the senior officer, was to be a nice guy who was always kind with the soldiers, no, no problems with the soldiers, no corrupt, not corrupt, young person, and he's killed. So this, I think, was a turning point in Azeri society, which we see now how they support president or the government in this war. I mean, uh, I'm I'm against this war, but I'm the only one, or maybe out of ten people in Azerbaijan. So. 99.99% support this war because they see it as a claim to get their territories back. You know, uh, when Azeri president was saying this war as a, um, he was saying using a word uh, when the need will come and people were making fun of this. And today they say that need is Mr. Pashinyan because since Pashinyan came to power, Azerbaijan had a great hope for them. And as a, he was very sympathetic for Azeris. First, he's a Democrat coming to power. Secondly, he's coming to win over Sarkisian, which Azeris fought, had a role in uh, Khojali massacre in 1992. Secondly, of Azeri people, where 600 people were killed. Secondly, they thought he was not doing well in negotiations with Azeri president. He was not uh, compromising enough. So people were happy. And uh, although there were say, rumors that there's some clashes at the border, Sarkisian was saying, Sarkisian's people, nothing happened. Border was quiet. So revolution took place. Pashinyan came to power. And people had hope for them. And I think in the beginning, things were going well. But since that, Pashinyan has started all these um, provocations. Um, uh, you know, well, send, you can say sending his son to Karabakh. When, you know, there were claims that Armenians come and serve in Karabakh. But he's the first time proving that he Armenian citizen comes to serve in Nagorno-Karabakh, which means there is no Nagorno-Karabakh. There is just Armenia. Uh, secondly, he was saying Armenia, Karabakh is Armenian. He came to Stepanakert to make that speech. And of course, as there is one saying, if Karabakh is Armenia, what's the point of negotiation? He, his wife goes and takes a gun, takes a picture with a gun, he joins the women's battalion with a gun. So you see that there is some kind of provocation or maybe some unknown things that they were thinking the war's coming, I don't know. But I just read the news, uh, just came to me, the art article by uh, a prominent Armenian scholar and a part of government in 92, uh, Gerard Liberidian, Professor Liberidian, who wrote on uh, September 1st, 20, 26 days before the conflict, for this war, that apparently Armenia, some people in Armenia uh, government, uh, on August 10th, has announced Serbs Treaty as part of Armenian foreign policy, which means that Serbs Treaty of 21, as you know, is, is basically partial part, uh, taking Turkey into parts and dividing between France and, and Greece, etc. So. One, Turkey saw this as a threat, and their foreign minister spoke ten day, two weeks later saying this is, uh, this is not good. So you see Pashinyan and his government, instead of 
moving things to peace. And apparently, as our president said, that he was doing quite well with Sarkisian. Apparently, Sarkisian wasn't as bad as people thought because you know, people don't hear much about uh, the negotiations. But today, President, as our president says, actually, Sarkisian was very well. So you see that Pashinyan has done nothing to move things forward with the peace, but at least has done everything. One, one, of, one yes. of the things you are talking about is very, I think, concerning to me. You saying, well, politicians, war, soldiers, that's one thing. But you're saying majority of people, at least in Azerbaijan, are yeah. for, which means, at least the way I hear it, it means... Yeah was really no efforts or nothing serious about at least bringing some kind of dialogue between people, track to the yeah. bottom, what we yeah. call. And Pashinyan is making this, so it's it's bad in Azerbaijan, it's getting bad in Armenia. Pashinyan is not he's not acting as a leader of a democratic state. He's acting as an authoritarian leader. I mean, Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan cannot decide much. Uh, even if we say, stop the war, president or government may not stop the war. But in Armenia, there is a democracy, there's a democratic likely government. And he's telling his people, ordinary people, go and take weapons and fight for your lives. You know, I've seen videos of from people from uh, Stepanakert or from other Armenian towns of Nagorno-Karabakh. But that part I say, yeah. Armenia is, is, at least from the reports I hear, Armenia is losing the war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that fighting back is not help if this is a this is a uh, existential threat for armenians of armenia and nagorno karabakh this is not a way to do to stop it existential threat is to involve international mediators not surrender basically your army but invite experts invite you know observers to so that if if armenian society is afraid of azerbaijani army entering uh, nagorno karabakh and massacring people which i which i here from Armenian side, then that's not the way to stop it. Uh, if, if Azerbaijan has, as this video suggests, more weapons, more soldiers, more uh, spending on army, you know, you may think it's going to win. Of course, there are international players, Russia and Turkey, now involved. Uh, we don't. We can talk about this when we come to the geopolitical side uh, of this. But it, the, the main thing is that this war, uh, this fight. Is Azeri's fight, and they they claim it, and it's it's Armenians fight as well because they they don't want to agree with this situation. So, but what today seems to be uh, interesting is that uh, this Nagorno-Karabakh, which was seventy five percent Armenian, twenty five percent Azeri, uh, uh, by when the conflict started in nineteen eighty eight, uh, about forty thousand Azeris from Nagorno-Karabakh, which was uprooted in the first place in ninety two when Shusha town was occupied and then other towns. Uh, and after Hojali massacre, people just left in masses. And then there's 570,000 people from surrounding territories, uh, which tells me a lot of those territories were actually occupied in a very brazen way. I mean, they didn't need it. And even in Kocharyan's in, uh, memoirs, uh, this is the second president of Armenia. Uh, he was he came to power in 97, and, uh, and he, uh, to replace Terpeterson, he confesses in his book that Agdan, which had 150,000 Azeri people, was occupied by his own will. I mean, he decided with his team, with his you know, cabinet in Karabakh to go and occupy. And we, we, of course, don't know Russian side helped them or not. You know, that's another sort. I mean, definitely the military-wise. But Armenian president, Levon Tepetesian, was unaware of it. And he asked him to immediately stop it and return Agdan. He did not agree. So a lot of this suffering comes from uprooting 
and killing, you know, you know we lost 30,000 people in this war uh, collectively with Armenia, but I think majority of them were 20,000 other Azeris. Um, and uh, there's significant civilian population um, of it. So there are- yeah, If I'm hearing you right, you're saying there is a lot of hurt. There is a lot of- uh, Yes, absolutely. That is not caused by just what started in July and then- Yes, it now. just- This is yes. the continuation or the results exactly. of- Exactly. But going back to uh, 1920 um, and when we had first war, I mean, you have to understand that at that time, things were much more civil. Um, you know, there were uh, uh, Azeri, because Armenia had significant Azeri population, Azerbaijan had significant Armenian population. So there were Azeri MPs in Armenian parliament in the First Republic, 1980, and there were Armenian MPs in Azeri parliament. And they were discussing, they were active people, you know, and there were even nationalist party, Dashnak Sutun, which is Armenia's basically most nationalist party. They were sitting in Azeri parliament and they were talking about their rights. Uh, so things were much more civil in 1920 war. And of course, Azerbaijan and Armenia, they, it was missed opportunities the same way as it is today. And that's what the major threat is because in 1920 of January, untamed powers sent a telegram to Azeris uh, saying the major threat comes from Russia, uh, from the north. Said so the major threat comes from the north because Azerbaijan was fighting with Armenia on the west. North is Russia, and it exactly happened uh, four months after I, April 28th. Russian forces entered from the north and took the control of Baku, and then when they went to Armenia in October. They captured Armenia, and that's what they, the, the territories mostly was decided. So there were three disputed territories, but Azerbaijan controlled them: Nakhchivan, Zangezur, and Armenia, uh, Karabakh. Um, as a, in three years of under Bolsheviks, Nakhchivan became part of Azerbaijan. Uh, it was autonomy with Turkey's insistence. Um, Zangezur went to Armenia, uh, and Karabakh became actually no one's. It was Azerbaijan, but it was Armenian autonomy. So it's actually uh, uh, like pistol with Karabakh made in this way. So it was not. It was basically Armenian majority with uh, inside Azerbaijan. So. Things were much more civil, and even in compromises, when Armenia, when because, and again, they were so smart in that time. All this, when Russian Empire was collapsing as a result of the First World War, uh, these three countries, Georgians, Azeri, so three nationalities, because we didn't have countries yet, and Georgian, Azeri, and Armenian MPs of Russian Duma, Russian Parliament, they came back to their countries because Russia was collapsing, civil war, you know, World War First, First World War, and. They established a Caucasus Union, the Transcaucasian same, which that was to be to remain. That was a collective, like EU type country to be run. But because it was World War I, because Turkey, Ottomans were there, because Germans were involved, Ottomans and Georgians had a dispute over territory again on Batumi. Georgians, Turks, Ottoman controlled that territory and didn't want to give it to Georgia. So Georgia expected support from Azeris uh, uh, and uh, it didn't come. And they, they said, then we don't want to be in the union. So the first thing collapsed, Georgia left on May 26th and announced its independence in 1918. In, nine, in 28th of May, on the same day, both Armenia and Azerbaijan declared their independence. So they knew the thing and capital uh, that was, Armenia wanted to make its capital as Gumri, the, Alexandropol, the, 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 their, uh, their most Armenian city of that time. And because it was under Ottoman conquest, you know, under Ottoman control, um, they asked 
they said, as Azeri MPs, if you don't mind making Yerevan our capital, because Yerevan by that time was predominantly Azeri. There were Armenians, but they were predominantly Azeri. So Azerbaijan said, yes, go ahead and do it. So there were compromises then. Uh, there were some kind of agreement that this is, we have to live together. We have to. There were fights, but not as major uprooting as it is today, except Shusha was a big, uh, the photo that was this Al Jazeera video shows uh, is from Shusha, and the, Shusha had a major problem. There were some uprooting, yeah, there were refugees, but not as catastrophic as it was in 88. And when this conflict started in 88, which is 20th of February, 88, in Nagorno-Karabakh, as a start date, it's demonstrations in Nagorno-Karabakh, Armenians asking, uh, Soviet Azerbaijan and Soviet Armenia to approve transfer of Karabakh Autonomous Republic to Armenia uh, Republic, Soviet Republic. So at that time, we're not talking about independence. We just wanted to be taken out of Azerbaijan and given to Armenia. And naturally, of course, Azerbaijanis refused because they have, you know, claim or co collective memory of Karabakh and Shusha is being one of them, but there's a, 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 a kingdom, a small monarchy, in uh, uh, nine, uh, 19th, 18th century, 18th and 19th century, called Karabakh Khanate. So Azerbaijan associated Karabakh with that Khanate, and you know historically, uh, with all those Turkic dynasties that ruled this rule, that Azerbaijan considered their own ancestors. The same way Armenians claim there were Armenian uh, monarchies, uh, small monarchs and states, vassal states in Karabakh. Yes, they were, but they were part of you know bigger states that Azeris considered their inheritance. And that's why naturally they don't want to agree. So that's, and this, at that time in 88, this was led mostly by academics, academic of scientists, science uh, historians, philologists. They yeah. were all claiming um, for this because they had that collective or historical sources from 1918 conflict. And uh, so they, uh, they, of course, they, they put oil in the fire in this conflict because people, I don't think majority of people, both Armenians and Azeris, wanted that or see that but they listened to their most smart people and those smart people said we have to do it this way right and and that's i got a couple couple other quick questions as we as we'll have to move to uh to margarita and one well one the most maybe important uh, mm -hmm. is what's what can be done now what or if you were if you were to tell us, here's what's really a good idea of how this conflict, you said you're against the war, so you don't think winning territory by war is how this should end. Then how should this end? What's, what's a solution that would be, you think, acceptable for both Azeris and Armenians in this conflict? And what's the international role in making sure this kind of agreement does happen? Well, uh, my once... This fighting has to stop, of course. Fighting will have to stop. And I don't think Armenian side wanting to fight more makes it even better. So I think to save Armenian lives uh, and Azeri lives, I think at least Armenia has to stop the war, um, stop fighting, you know, invite mediators, come and monitor situation and do handover or do some kind of start peace talks. My suggestion for, I mean, I've come up with my own solution 15 years ago when I was doing my master's at Minnesota, University of Minnesota, and sent that uh, to several, including foreign ministries of Armenia, Russia, you know, that I think someone has a proposal. I have I've proposed, I haven't published it, but my suggestion has always been 
territorial exchange is the best solution out of now because Armenia doesn't agree to be inside Azerbaijan, even highest autonomy, and Azerbaijan doesn't want to give up a territory. So my suggestion has been um, to give uh, four predominantly Ar Armenian uh, parts of Nagorno-Karabakh uh, uh, autonomous oblasts, uh, except Shusha, uh, to Armenia, uh, and maybe even add Shaumian district, which was on the north and is also historic uh, Armenian Melikdom that Armenians consider dear to them. Give it to them, uh, to Armenia, with maybe corridor without corridor. I think corridor is, is tricky because Azerbaijan and Armenia both agreed to some kind of uh, territorial exchange in 99 and it went down um, um, because there were third parties not interested in this, supposedly Russia and Iran, because they don't want to lose Azerbaijan gain. Um, so the Paul Gobble clan plan, which was made in uh, 80s, late 80s, suggested giving a last small piece of land uh, between Armenia and Nakch Azerbaijan and Nakchevan to Azerbaijan in, in return to Nagorno-Karabakh. My suggestion was to give those Armenian territories to Armenia in exchange of former Azeri villages uh, in Armenia that border Azerbaijan. So some of the territories and uh, I have the map, I have made up a, a map my, by my own hand, and it looks maybe same as this now, maybe a little bit different, but it's it's gonna solve the problem because then Armenians remain in Karabakh, uh, uh, Armenians join finally, because this conflict started not with independence. Our Karabakh will not be independent for long, even if Azerbaijan accepted it. They will join Armenia. So basically it means a territorial gain for Armenia without territorial gain for Azerbaijan. So that's why their fight is about territorial gain. This is Caucasus, they, no one wants to lose its own property. So if we gain Azeri villages along, of Armenia that were Azeri until 88, and are, some of them are still empty, Azerbaijan, I think, can give uh, Armenian, uh, Azerbaijans will not mind giving Nagorno-Karabakh, except Shusha, to Armenia in exchange of the territory, because there are tons of Azeris from those Armenian villages uh, that can and want to want go back home. So I think that's but, ideal solution. But you're yes. generally implying that one side will give up either their land or moving their people or you know something that until today was not possible. And, and you talk a lot about bringing um, external mediators. And um, is there no other way? I mean, you talked about earlier in the years that people were living together with no trouble. Um, yes. It's only about calling it Azerbaijan or calling it Armenia. Yeah. Um, is that yeah. is that the yeah. real? I mean, territory. Yeah, mediators. That is yeah, mediators was to stop the current. You know, to for Armenia to get a guarantee that advancing Azeri army to get its Tartars. I mean, no one disagrees that this is Azeri Tartars, right? So even Armenian mm -hmm. experts accept this is not disputed territory. That's why no one is helping Armenia. So. To stop advancing their army, if 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 they're worried about their lives or whoever, because a lot of Armenians have left because of this shelling and Mitchell shelling, um, so there are not many citizens, but they want to come back. I'm sure they, this is their home. They want to naturally come back. Uh, they they can return it, but by fighting, you're just making situation worse. My suggestion, uh, territorial exchange. Yes, both countries will lose territories, but gain territories. So uh, my, for, my, for, me, for my belief, territorial integrity is a numeric factor. It's not a design graphic. Uh, maps may change, but 
If Azerbaijan at the end ends up 86,600 square kilometers, Armenia stays with 2,919,000 uh, uh, kilometers, but in a different shape, that's not a problem. That shouldn't be a problem. Yeah. And those, again, those villages, Azeri villages, ethnic Azeri villages, Azeris were expelled in 1988. Most of them are still empty. And Armenia doesn't have, you know, people can, if there's some people there who leave, Armenians or refugees from Azerbaijan, who, Armenian refugees who have lived in those villages, they can remain or they can choose to stay with Azerbaijan. Or to, and I think bringing solution for this, this way will also mm -hmm. unite them in the future, like into European type institution, or maybe join EU. And joining EU, there will be no borders. Then people can go and live wherever they want with the passports and et cetera either with Transcaucasus passport or with EU passports. So I think by sol solving it this way can help us. That's my solution. I don't know about others. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, this, is, this is so uh, similar to normally our discussions, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which we do yes. a lot because we, we're hearing from you, uh, Anazari, and now we're moving to hear Margarita. So we'll move you to the attendees uh, side. Thank you. Please stay with us. Uh, Margarita, this is, uh, uh, like we said in, in the beginning, this is a, a conflict that has, has a long history. You also watched the video. You looking at this conflict, where, where do you see the problems? Where do you see the context of the problem uh, of this conflict? Um, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And I think it's an important time. And um, as many discussions we have on this issue, as much awareness we can raise about what's happening um, in the region and um, how much there is human suffering on both sides, um, I think that might help to uh, move things in a positive direction. I'm at least hopeful. Um, Again, it's very difficult to talk about this conflict um, and uh, in terms of like who's right and who's wrong. Obviously, um, Ulvi presented things that um, are, are um, uh, resonating with a narrative that is in Azerbaijan. Um, and um, I can obviously present a lot of other um, counter arguments that would resonate with Armenian uh, perspective of how um, we are, Armenians are the first Christian nation in the world. We have been there uh, for Many centuries, Yerevan is um, was built in its uh, its former uh, city of Erebuni that is much older than Rome is for for that matter. So I mean, those are the things that it's going to go back and forth, back and forth with no. Um, with, with any positive uh, impact. I mean, what, how many arguments I will bring, I'm sure colleagues on the other side will find counter arguments. Um, however, I think one thing um, that I would particularly want to respond to what Ulvi said about Pashinyan provoking or um, um, kind of um, taking the blame, I guess, in, 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 in this escalation of the situation, but in particular the fact that he said that he, uh, Ulvi mentioned that uh, Pashinyan sent his son to, to Nagorno-Karabakh uh, to army. That's true. However, the um, the narrative there is different. I, when Pashinyan did that, he segued his um, uh, uh, his action with a speech that I have um, I'm putting my own son at, on the line, and I have stake in peace. I don't want my son to die. So that was the narrative that I am. My commitment to peace is by showing that I'm, I'm, I have my son there, 
I'm more than interested in peace. I don't want him to die. So that was the narrative, at least like what he said and why it was done. Obviously, we can see that it was interpreted very differently um, on, on the other side, which is, again, understandable um, in, in this context. So um, just I, I kind of felt the... Um, uh, the, the need to respond to that in uh, to that particular incident and what goes for Anna uh, Hakopian, his wife, I think whatever came later, I think all, all the images that Uvi is referring to, yes, but they were happened after 20, September 27th. So it's it's a very, once once bullets are flying, the narrative changes. I mean, you know it as, as, a, as a conflict resolution specialist. I mean, things get really um, out of control um, uh, at that point. Um, what I want to say is that I think why we got here, I'm gonna put aside all the historical arguments. I mean, I will not talk about any time back in history who did this first or um, last. Um, yes, uh, the military victory of Armenia in 1994 was significant for Armenia. Um, there is, we do believe, or the Armenian nation believes that um, it rightfully restored what was a historical injustice by Stalin. And again, um, historians, um, I, I'm sure there will be a lot of debate about it. However, what happened afterwards, I think, for the 30 years led us to this uh, point. Um, and by what happened, I mean like several factors. There is um, increased alienation of people on both sides. Um, Uli mentioned that we had uh, historical coexistence uh, during the Soviet time, which is true, pretty much. Uh, there have been, on an everyday level, things were um, working out okay. Um, yes, there were some demographic shifts here and there, which kind of accumulated into these grievances. But on everyday level, I don't think people were um, un necessarily very unhappy. Um, so, but there, after after the, the war, um, things... Um, there is a lot of alienation of people on the both sides. There is mutually exclusive narrative, um, and um, especially on, on the part of Azerbaijan. I think the enemy image that is portrayed about Armenians on, on the uh, within the Azerbaijani community exacerbates and also feeds into the Armenian uh, narratives of uh, genocide. And obviously, Turkey's involvement right now is not helping. I think one thing that is being, when we're talking about existential threat, I think a lot of people are completely discounting the fact of Turkey's involvement, the fact of Armenia's historical relationships with Turkey, the fact that Armenia is right now sees this as an existential threat. And there are some bits and pieces that are uh, kind of ignored or not brought into this narrative. For example, when in 2006, the Armenian officer was killed in Budapest during the native language training and then released afterwards, extradited to, to Azerbaijan and then was immediately released, just coming down of the, uh, from the airplane, uh, awarded uh, Azerbaijan's hero ranking and all of that, that does not help Armenian people to believe that there can be a, a peaceful coexistence uh, with with the uh, um, uh, Azerbaijan just because uh, in 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 our in the Armenian mind like somebody who committed a horrific atrocity at a time of peace in a different country is uh, is being a hero in in in, in Azerbaijan so that's I think those are the small bits and pieces that are um, that are uh, kind of 
left out from the puzzle and we need to understand the entire puzzle. Um, the second point that I wanna bring is obviously the, 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 the vision or the, um, uh, not division, the, difference between the political uh, systems that exist. Yes, Armenia went through uh, challenging times uh, for a long time. I think we were, uh, we were um, challenged by our own political system, but 2006, uh, 2016, the, the, with the Velvet Revolution, I think that was the first time that there has been like such a white, uh, popularly supported uh, political change, peaceful change in Armenia. Um, and I think with, with that change, it solidified within the Armenian people the uh, idea of we are creators of our future. We were able to uh, transition to democracy. We were able to... Uh, uphold democratic values, and we are ready for a solution. Um, uh, we're ready to solve things um, in a democratic way. I think, again, so, uh, yes. What is, what is happening now? I mean, if you are coming from this uh, narrative, a peaceful narrative, and you believe that you can create the change of tomorrow, why are you not able to, um, I don't know, bring um, the international uh, um, role to, you know, players to come in and, and mediate? Why are you not able to change this situation and not lead into war? So, yeah, I mean, um, if you look, especially when you, <clears throat> your video also confirmed that when you're looking at the power, like military power balance in, in the region, there was no, um, given the current situation with the pandemic, there is no reason whatsoever for the Armenian side to start any offensive. Um, I, if there were provocations, again, I, I, I'm not a military specialist. I can not speak to that, but I'm just looking at as a conflict resolution specialist and where the Armenian narrative stood before uh, September 27th. I, I don't think there was any um, objective reason, uh, or even in, in that case, subjective for uh, for a full uh, full blown escalation to be started on the Armenian side. Um, I, with the, running the risk of being accused of being biased, I would say that I think all the known suggestions by international community to have monitors who will be looking and investigating who fired the shots first, it, to my knowledge, uh, are turned down by the Azerbaijani side. Again, it goes into like where they're going to come from and all those uh, debates. So um, that obviously prevents any preventive engagement or early engagement or any uh, uh, monitoring mechanism, uh, effective monitoring, not like um, uh, parachuting in and out. Because we had like, when you have, like, for example, when you, for, for 30 years, we had um, OSC monitors visiting the front line. It's an orchestrated, uh, well-planned in advance. Obviously, people know where they're going to arrive. Nobody shoots at that time, obviously. So there is no permanent monitoring mechanism in place that would allow to actually call the names. You started at first. You should do this. You should do that. So I think with lack of implementation and effective monitoring and the ability of the international community to actually name names and point fingers um, makes this uh, creates this environment of impunity. And I want to say on both sides, obviously, if let's say the Azerbaijani side knows that they're going to 
um, shot over the over the contact line um, and not get um, reprimanded for that, they will do it. It goes back. I mean, Armenian side can show with some some sort of restraint, but not always. They, there is no incentive. So, I think there is. Um, yes, we need to find peace through our own means, with our own society. But I think at this point, with all the international involvement, there should be a bigger stand, a stronger stand um, on the international community side to um, intervene, uh, to stop the immediate fighting, obviously. Uh, we can, again, like leave the discussion of uh, the resolution um, um, to a later, I guess, like a, a secondary stage, but the immediate fighting um, is something that really needs to stop. You don't, you don't want to see kids. I mean, they're they're living in the and um, no no. People of Nagorno Karabakh right now, people of Artsakh, are the ones who are in the basement. These are people who had their lives built for thirty years, and right now they're in basements. And I think they are um, they. Um, th that's one thing that needs to stop. Uh, you know, I'm hearing you and I'm thinking this is this has happened in many conflicts in some ways when we get to a good place where we have a ceasefire, which happened 25 years, 26 years ago for for you in Azerbaijan, for Armenia and Azerbaijan. And then kind of the international community falls asleep. And the assumption is a ceasefire or absence of you know, overt violence means peace. And we know that's not true. And in some ways, that's what ended up happening with Armenia and Azerbaijan. Oh, everything is fine. They're not killing each other on a daily basis. They're likely not going to do it again. But what happens in 20, 30 years is you increase demonization, you increase violence. I see it on the Palestinian-Israeli side. People assume because now it's not a full-blown intifada, we'll always be fine when it's not true. It's just preparing the ground for a worse situation. I was just gonna ask you, when, what can be done? In some ways, it's a similar question to ask to Ovi, and he, he suggested exchange of territory. What is the ideal solution with or without the international community? What can be really done to settle this once and for all? I think, um... You're right, um, and I wanted kind of to continue. I, I honestly, I don't, uh, as a council resolution specialist, as an Armenian, um, I, I don't. I want to say that I don't think exchange of uh, land will resonate with the Armenian society, or that's even a solution. I do still think it's a band-aid because it's not addressing the underlying grievances. It's not addressing the, the hatred underneath it. For Armenian, if you ask the Armenian uh, society, it's not land for the sake of being square kilometer. There is so much emotional attachment and um, meaning assigned to its being a home, a homeland. And uh, there is an Armenian word that we use, which is Yerkid, which means also, it means the world, but also homeland. So if you think of the, that conceptualization, I don't think exchange of the lands um, is uh, would would resonate even with the Azerbaijani side. I I I I'm very skeptical about it. What I want to say, and I just saw there was a question, uh, and I'm kind of wanted to address that that if there has been attempt on the civil society to intervene, and that's exactly the problem with the increasing uh, the 
authoritarian regime in Azerbaijan where civil society is under attack. There, in the past 10 years at least, like the first in, in early 1990s when we're all going through these processes of democratization, building of civil society, there was a lot of international effort, a lot of international um, support to attract two processes, to creating and building up civil society. However, um, with uh, the mis misconstrued and misunderstood concept of civil society and what it means and how it can endanger in the minds of authorities that their their power, there was a, a big crackdown on the on the civil society, especially on Azerbaijan in Azerbaijan. And um, I think with lack of that, the, the lack of that engagement. Uh, created a situation when uh, polarizing narratives uh, were brewing, um, uh, uh, kind of created or exacerbated uh, the situation. There, virtually, there were no like there were several very marginal groups uh, with very marginal effects that were meeting here and there, but th there is there was no consistency. There were not, um, you know, like in the conflict resolution, we we have this. Uh, um, um, concept of working with key people or working with more people. We were not working with either. There were no, it's not that we're working with a wider public to uh, spread awareness. We were not working with key people that can kind of trickle down. We're, that's, that's, um, was not happening. So, um, we can talk as much as we want about exchanging the territory, about signing the ceasefire and you name it. If there is no systemic way of addressing the hatred uh, within the societies, uh, by and again, I will say this, and I'm I am ready to take the accusation of being very biased. The hatred on the towards Armenian people in the Azerbaijani uh, side, um, we can never achieve uh, peace. For the full disclosure, I, I'm not saying I'm not saying Armenians are very much tolerant towards uh, towards the uh, Azeris. I'm not even saying that it, at the time of war it's not even possible. But what I'm trying to say that within again, it's it's going to go to a larger discussion. But within the Armenian narrative, I think we are more traumatized and carry the 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 uh, the load of the Armenian genocide with Turkey. That we there is some sort of um, uh, we, we, view, we view the conflict with Azerbaijan through the prism of genocide and existential threat coming from, uh, from a, a country that um, has the motto of one nation, two states. That does not help, again, like the Armenian uh, uh, attitude uh, towards uh, Azerbaijan. And once we see policies that current policies, especially in the military field, that feed into that one nation, two state narrative, obviously people are scared and it's seen as, as an existential threat to the existence of Armenian people outside of the Nagorno-Karabakh even, even within Armenia. Right. So we don't have to call it um, hatred, maybe between the sides, but also fear is something that I'm sure is present, as you mentioned. Um, are there any peace-building organizations or any organizations that are trying to connect the people? I mean, I know there's a lot of politics in this, but the local people, are they at all yeah. meeting and talking and trying to get closer? 
I would say uh, in recent years, very, very, very few. Uh, most of the, uh, and that's, this is the issue. Um, a lot of the peace building effort is not driven locally. And that's a significant issue. You have international alert, you have conciliation resources doing wonderful things. I mean, I, uh, when there is nothing else happening, those things are very important. Uh, you have Imagine Center for Conflict Transformation doing really important work. Um, however, very few initiatives because of the disconnect between the societies. I mean, there is very difficult, for example, for an Azerbaijani um, uh, peace building group to reach First of all, to speak up in Azerbaijan, second of all, to reach out to the um, Armenian side. The second, uh, on the other hand, like um, my dissertation actually was on this, um, on, on, on peace building process in the Caucasus, not particular in Armenia, but what I have, um, uh, what, what I kind of gather from this, um, a lot of times, even the peace builders in, in Armenia who have very good relationship, very respect their Azeri colleagues extremely. They're like, we don't know how to act not to endanger their, like physically endanger them. Um, so how to be supportive, but not fuel the existing mistrust towards these processes within Azerbaijan. And in Arme on the Armenian side, once um, the things get escalated, obviously the peace building voices get marginalized, obviously. Um, especially that it, it happened in 2016 with the escalation um, when peace builders uh, felt that they are, they are under attack because people are dying on the front line. And obviously it's easy to be a peace builder during time of peace. It is extremely difficult to be a peace builder when you have people being killed on the front line. Uh, we got a couple of questions, especially for you, Ovi, where people have questions about Azerbaijan and the freedom of press in uh, Artsakh and, uh, and that there is no international press in those areas. Is what, Why is that? And then the second, uh, we, we got quite a few questions for you, Ovi, but we don't have much time. So we'll have you answer as much as you can. In this, I guess one uh, of the question was: There's no international press in the front line. Well, in Azerbaijan, uh, okay. that international press is not getting as uh, much uh, or not getting access. And then about okay. yeah, there, there, were... there is uh, tweeting very, uh, very inflammatory language. Uh, let's let's just those. Uh, hmm. Uh, well, I'm not sure if I kind of understood. I mean, but uh, yeah, there were some, um, you know, uh, claims that Azerbaijan was not, uh, and that's unfortunate, uh, not uh, allowing international media to the country as early as, for example, Armenia, Armenia did, and allowed them to Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, so, but I think that issue has been has 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 ended. There are a lot of uh, already France 24 and other channels in Azerbaijan reporting in the front line. Um, uh, I don't know much details. I, I heard the Fran France 24 journalist complaining that she she's not, she's being followed and etc. But you know, I, I think that I uh, I'll just comment on uh, democracy and as a, unfortunately, I mean I I worked uh, for 
many international organizations for democratization, you know, first as a humanitarian assistance to refugees and IDPs, but then democratization processes. All we have done, of course, has not been ended fruitfully. I mean, same was in Armenia. I mean, uh, of course, uh, Armenia and Georgia has done more progress in that uh, compared to Azerbaijan. But I think the solution of that issue will come when, unfortunately, Azerbaijan has lost war, has lost territories. The people, as I said, are angry. And for them, for years, Karabakh has been issue number one, not democratization. It came second. So I think once we solve that problem of Nagorno-Karabakh, um, and I agree that we have to solve it mutually, I agree. I mean, if we win now completely, it doesn't mean Armenian, as I've said to my own people, <laughs> And that's why I'm I'm not liked in by my Facebook friends or by my by my who anyone who listens to me. That if we win, it doesn't mean Armenia will stay silent. This conflict will come back in 20, 30 years. So that's why I'm saying the solution is to go into a territorial exchange. And that has been on the table. And it would sides were close to signing agreement on that. My solution is even better than corridor solution. Uh, if Azerbaijanis can go back to Shusha, I'm fine. They'll close their eyes for four Armenian or five Armenian districts, including Shalmian, uh, to go to Armenia, as long as they gain territories from uh, uh, Zangezur and Goycha that they've been whining all these years. We are from Zangezur, we are from Sisia, which are Armenian. We can't go there. So, of course, when we say this, Armenians always come back saying, oh, they have, what about Baku? We need to go to back to Baku. Okay. Yes, I think eventually Azeris will go to Yerevan and Armenians will come to Genja. Uh, but that has happened in more different way. As I said, it has to, sides have to consult, you know. So, I mean, um, again, what uh, commenting on what Margarita said about Safarov, I disagreed with that. I, I, it's a shameful, uh, in my view. I mean, whatever government does, that's different. I don't, I don't judge, but people supporting Safarov's heroization are not good for me. And I've been supporting Akram Ilesley, the writer, who came out and published that novel, Stone Dreams. I've been promoting Akram. I've been writing articles about Akram. Uh, I've known him for family, as a part of him family for 30 years. So that's a different story. But uh, I, I am for sympathy for Armenian side. I'm for empathy for Armenian side. I think more we see people with empathy in Armenia towards Azerbaijan will approach to peace more, you know, closer, in a faster way. Because uh, currently, whatever... I, I haven't seen much empathy from like, Armenian side on Azeri losses on oh. 570,000. I was sad to see, uh, you know, Armenians of Stepanakert leaving because of the shell. And I reminded myself, this was the same what I Armenians think, did uh, all, all the, I think, years sorry, ago. Yes. I'm, I'm going to stop you because of the time pressure, but sorry. Um, uh, sorry. definitely... You it's talking about empathy and sympathy toward each other. I mean... I think there is a lot of uh, fear and anger and hatred going on. And what a better way to end is that we need more yes. empathy. We need more understanding. We need to uh, connect with each other much, much more. And in a positive way, finding things that humanizes each other. Their human dehumanization has been such a big part of the narrative that I think we need to find a way of humanizing each other and connecting with each other's suffering in a way that makes us part of the human family. I don't think we're seeing each other as a part of the same human family. Mm -hmm.
And and it's important to say, I look at both of you and I've talked to both of you before this show and and you're not, you're Azari, you're Armenian, but you're not, I'm pretty sure neither of you see the other as the enemy. You don't see Olvi as your enemy and Olvi and now you don't see Margarita as your enemy. And I think we, in 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 so many conflicts around the world, this uh, this demonization of the other is really the best weapon to keep politicians able to get us to be willing to carry weapons and shoot at each other, being willing to die for eventually for the for their own causes and for the causes of those who sell them weapons and for the causes of those who benefit financially from it and leaders who can justify their dictatorship because of it and and so on and so on. And that's not only Armenia, not only Azerbaijan, unfortunately, that's too many places in the world right now. Uh, but thank you both for joining us. I, I think everyone into today's uh, show uh, will leave with a lot more understanding of what's happening there. And regardless if you're more sympathetic toward this side or that side, I think we need to be sympathetic to the other side that we didn't know. And I hope, I know from my friends, some are sympathetic to the Armenians more, some are sympathetic to the others, uh, Azerbaijanians more. And I think it's important that we we careful at least to understand what the other side thinks and to to realize there's a human being there as well, even if we politically are supportive of one or the other cause. Kim? Thank you. Well said, Aziz. <laughs> well, um, next, what... it's going to continue similar, right? Yes. We're uh, again, I, I, I'm, I'm all for looking uh, back to um, 1918 as a role model. Uh, you know, those leaders, dealt with it better way than we're doing it now. So that's uh, that's one thing. I mean, that example from uh, from Yerevan was a good example to show how Armenian MPs felt a need to ask. You know, yes, Ar Ar Yerevan might be Armenian for centuries back, but in 1918, it was and they felt a need to ask. So that's a kind, kind gesture, and we need to do that more. We need to understand that, you know, uh, it's we're not threats to that. I mean, we, we're neighbors, we have to live here. Um, we're not moving away. Amen. Right? Well, so, next week we're going to talk about doing that here in the United States. And we're <laughs> talking about how, how do you have a conversation with your friends, people who you know, people, you, your neighbors, who might have different political opinions, especially in those times. And how do we stop demonization of, of our own neighbors. And I'm not talking about you can be a Republican, you can be a Democrat. I'm not saying you need to switch your party, but how do we not start hating each other and leading ourselves into a civil war because of it? It's going to be an interesting, fun conversation. Uh, so join us uh, next week. And uh, I'm hoping one day, hopefully sooner than later, we can do our own dual narrative trips in Armenia and Azerbaijan and have Ovi and Margarita join us and be able to talk about it and be able to safely travel between the two different sides because it's not where we travel, it's how.